Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. We are at the end of season two, and our series has earned 23,000 downloads in 61 countries. Rather unexpectedly, Ecuador is in third place in terms of total downloads. Wow. Thank you, education friends. We're going to take a short summer break and then continue to bring you in the fall of 2021, the stories of agile, adaptive, and innovative public, public charter, and private school educators and education leaders until we have achieved a thousand points of light. We are many va'a, one voyage, all in it for all kids on all islands. Speaking of a thousand points of light, today my guest for this final episode is Aaron Medeiros, an epic educator at Kanu Ikapono Learning Center, a K-12 Hawaiian culture-focused school in Anahola on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. Aaron seeks renewal in literature and hiking, biking, or playing at the beach with her educator husband and their two daughters. She lives in the moku of Puna in the Ahupua'a of Kapa'a. Erin is a National Board Certified English Language Arts and Social Studies teacher who is passionate about language and hopes to grow her students' capacities to be curious, read critically, write energetically, speak clearly, and listen attentively. She views teaching as a deeply creative profession and encourages her students to develop their attention to the past and present, to observe and question life. She does whatever it takes to get her students outside and into the community at least once a week and loves to prepare them each year to perform their poetry out loud. Erin believes that networks and human connections are vital to a healthy teaching career. Erin is or has been a new teacher mentor, a peer mediation advisor, a nature club advisor, a senior project coordinator, and Hope Street Group Hawaii State Fellow. 
In November of 2018, she facilitated a breakout session at the Schools of the Future Conference that, with fellow teacher writers, advocated for and guided educators in methods of generating and publishing essays and blog posts. She serves humbly as a Merwin Creative Teaching Fellow, which takes inspiration from Hawaii's renowned poet W.S. Merwin. Erin earned a BA in history from Lewis and Clark College and a master's in education from the University of Oregon. And now, here's my conversation with Erin Medeiros. Erin, welcome to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Josh, thank you so much for having me. So Erin, um, at the start of this second season, I asked my guest, your husband, Jonathan, the following question about you. I asked, what does she bring to your partnership and what are the coolest things about her, the way she thinks, the things she does? So here in this last episode of season two, of course, I need to reverse this, right? So here goes. <laughs> <laughs> your husband, Aaron, is an educator. This is a chance for you to talk about him. So what does he bring to your partnership and what are the coolest things about him, the way he thinks, the things that he does? Wow. Um, well, thank you for asking that. I mean, he is such a deeply intelligent person. And in terms of our partnership, you know, there are many ways that we are alike and we share interests, but he has a memory for things that I do not have at all and can talk about almost any topic with incredible detail and examples and stories. Um, he just, yeah, he has this incredible ability to carry memory through and bring it into conversation. He's witty and funny. Um, and he really, I mean, I, I will take credit that I am the person who made him become a teacher actually, but, um, <laughs> but he brings so much to my teaching. I think that we have been mentors for each other our entire career. Mm. And that's something that's just invaluable to have someone that you always can bounce your ideas off of. You can always bring your bad day to them. Mm. Um, you can always troubleshoot with them. And he's just um, that incredible sounding board mm. um, and that creative partner that, um, I mean, I can't imagine my teaching career without him. Very honestly. And what's the thumbnail version of you helping him to become a teacher or supporting <laughs> that process? Well, um, yeah, very briefly, he and I met working at a law firm um, in Portland, Oregon. And when we met, I was pretty clear that I was going to go to grad school to become a teacher. He wasn't sure of what he would do next. And I just said, you know, why don't you do this with me? He was actually considering going into... Um, post-secondary teaching. He already had a master's in literature. And I said, you know, why not high school? Give it a try. And he was immediately, of course, extremely talented and has been from day one, just an incredible educator for secondary students. So mm. it was, um, 
a little bit of luck and a lot of him being totally ready for it. Right, right. It was, you can't imagine what a blast it was to do that episode with him back at the beginning <laughs> of the of the semester. Um, that was a real treat. So I also asked Jonathan the following, and I quote, tell us about your daughters. I have interviewed guests whose parents were or are teachers. So I wonder, speaking of empathy, which is what we were speaking about in that moment, what do you imagine it's like for your daughters to have two teachers as parents? And um, Jonathan responded to that. Um, listeners will have to dig up his episode to find out what he said. But Aaron, what, sure. do you, what do you think your children feel about having educators as parents? Like, is your, is your family always in learning mode? Are you an always learning mm. family? Yeah, I think I think that's probably true. And I think honestly, our family might not be very different if John and I weren't teachers. Um, I think he and I are just very curious people who love to read and love to learn new things and definitely love to have conversations. So, you know, I think we could be doing completely different careers and be raising kids very similarly. They're just used to us talking a lot and, <laughs> you know, uh, having a house filled with books and um, being interested in writing and um, being outside a lot and getting out and hiking and swimming. Um, so I think that they are um, getting the experience of just who we are as people. And I think that's something that, you know, related back to teaching, a big aha for me in the first couple of years of teaching is that you know, you cannot get away from who you just are as a person. That is going to be who you are as a teacher. And um, I think that that's, you know, that goes for parenting as well, is that uh, they got us as parents and we are who we are for both the, the classroom and the home setting. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that we're building empathy with them. And I hope that they're learning to become very curious people. I feel that they are. But um, but I'm not sure our, our being teachers um, changes much, hmm. honestly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so kind of along the same lines, um, I'm trying to imagine, because I have no experience, what it's like to live together as two writers, you and Jonathan. Um, in, in what <laughs> yeah. ways do you two interact with each other as writers? How are you different and how are you similar as writers? Oh, that's so interesting. And I think this is, I'm fascinated by this. Um, John is prolific. He can, you can give him a prompt and five minutes later, he's got, you know, three pages written. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's just how his brain works. If you ask him a question, he'll, same thing. He can talk about it for 10 minutes. I am much more deliberate. Um, I'm a person who expresses myself in writing much better than um, in speaking, I think. And I need the time to process. So we're extremely different in terms of how we write. Um, and, but, um, you know, I think it's really cool that we both are language arts teachers and we both love the process of writing because we share writing with each other all the time. Hmm. And um, we get, because we're so different as writers, we give each other completely different edits and suggestions than we ever would have thought of. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I think I can be helpful to John in terms of um, helping him cut things and pare down and stick to the point um, and use really deliberate examples. And I think he's very good at um, 
you know, getting me to be maybe more creative or, Mm. um, you know, he, he's very good at finding the story underneath something. So I think he always gives me that, but we love it. You know, we, we very honestly just enjoy the writing process and enjoy giving each other feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's been a joy for me because I really wasn't much of a writer before I became a teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is being a language arts teacher that has absolutely made me a better writer. Um, and part of that is of course that relationship with Jonathan as well. Yeah. It's super interesting. I don't know why, as I was preparing for, you know, to ask you that question, I, I just became suddenly sort of fascinated by the idea that two people in a partnership, um, you know, in the same profession, you know, two geologists or two lawyers or two writers and, and what it would be like, you know, in terms of that sort of day in and day out of life, if you had somebody who did exactly what you did or almost exactly, but from a different perspective. So that's, sure. that's kind of the genesis of that. So Aaron, we have something in common, which is a BA in history. Um, yours yes. is from Lewis and Clark College in Oregon and mine is from the University of Iowa. Um, for 17 years, I taught history, but the truth is I only taught history for a couple of years. In the early 2000s, I switched from teaching history to training kids to be historians, um, which is a significant shift for me. And at Lewis and Clark, when did you feel like you were being a historian rather than merely studying history? Like, what do you, what do we need to do as an education community to guide kids towards a love of history, which I think has a lot to do with being the historian instead of being the receptacle of historical yes. information. Um, I, I First, I want to say I am so glad you're asking about history, and I love that we're both history majors because um, I always find it fascinating to, you know, randomly see people's backgrounds and resumes and these people that you kind of never would have expected were history majors. And I think what we have in common, as you said, is being historians and being absolutely kind of having this insatiable curiosity about the past Mm -hmm. and trying to make sense of it. And, um, you know, at Lewis and Clark, it's a very uh, liberal arts school that is about people um, engaging in the inquiry process and engaging in discussion. And so I feel like from day one, probably the first history class I took, which I believe was a religion and American history class, um, it was about being a historian. And, and in fact, our first assignment was to go and um, attend <clears throat> religious services in two different, um, very different religions. And I think that's a great example of the kind of thing uh, that I love about history. Mm-hmm. Um, I love about social studies in general. And I want to bring to my kids is going out there and investigating and figuring out for ourselves um, what is here? What questions does that lead me to? Mm-hmm. Um, what more can I find out? And um, like you, actually, I my primary certificate is in social studies, but I actually only taught social studies for about two years um, and then went into language arts for the most part. And now I, I do a little bit of it. Um, <clears throat> but I am absolutely fascinated in kids engaging in that inquiry process. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a huge help is that because we now have a shift from Hawaii content and performance standards to um, 
I, I'm going to forget the name, the 3C framework or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, standards that really focus on being a historian. Um, mm-hmm. Can you do research? Can you ask great questions? Um, can you validate your sources? All of these things. Um, I think that's a move in the right direction. Um, absolutely. And I, personally, I have never been great at remembering all the details of any history. Mm. Um, but I have that desire to learn. And that's what I want for my own kids in a social studies setting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my my interest in history goes back to having an amazing AP US history teacher in high school who, you know, was my favorite teacher ever. And Um, My lasting memory of her is her just sitting on her desk watching us debate and discuss after looking over documents and having these rich discussions. Mm. And that's what I that's why I wanted to become a social studies teacher is I wanted to give that to my own kids. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, what's when I made that shift from teaching history to be to teach training kids to be historians, it, of course, necessitated that you switch away from something like a textbook to towards delving deeply into the primary sources. And that absolutely puts history into the hands of the kids because they not only have to analyze the sources, but they eventually have to come up with their own interpretation of the storyline, which is, you know, I've seen it happen over and over and over again, where the kids get very, very excited. And I remember remember, you know, I taught APUS history and I remember this one year I was so frustrated with the whole test prep and, you know, the grind, mm. the grind of covering from 1607 to Barack Obama and in whatever number of weeks. And so I just sort of said, ah, oh, the heck with it. And I decided to teach the course backwards. Um, so yes. I started with him, with Barack Obama's presidency and worked my way back to the very first persons to arrive in the so-called new world. Um, and for the kids, it was just like an eye-opening experience of driving backwards into the past. Um, but if you're looking in the rearview mirror, the rearview mirror is actually the future, which is a really strange kind of thing. And and we had so many amazing discussions um, along the way. So um, it's it's just, I, I hope if any teacher teaching history wants to take a small step forward, it just has to do with digging into the primary sources. That's what yes. it's really all about. Um, so kind of along the same lines and speaking of memory, um, many years ago, I had a friend I spent time with on the mainland and one day he, he shocked me, Aaron, by reciting verbatim the words to a rock song. Um, and then he did it again and again. Um, and from that time forward, he would often drop a stanza into one of our conversations. And frankly, I, I can't seem to memorize a single thing, not even people's names. Um, so my jealousy was pretty intense. And you, you wrote an essay um, for Edutopia titled The Benefits of Memorizing Poetry. Um, and it might be the best thing, Aaron, I'm not blowing smoke here, that I've read by a teacher in a very, very long time. Um, and so in this age when so many of us are criticizing um you know, a hundred plus years of kind of memorizing content and and not emphasizing skills development. What is the benefit of memorizing poetry? Well, I think it's it's tremendous, and thank you very much for that compliment. Um, I I had never memorized a poem until I became an AP English literature teacher. Actually, that's pro- I probably memorized a poem in high school English um, that was not a choice of mine, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, for me, I think it goes back to 
you know, that love of history, but remembering who we used to be as humans. And um, in the time before written language and documenting everything on paper, we are people who remember things and that's how we know. And we remember things through song and we remember things through chant and we remember things through telling stories. And so for me, it's just a very human thing to have something that you can always access through memory. And um, I think for students, it's a very powerful experience to, if they've never done it, um, memorize something that will stay with them forever and hopefully is something meaningful to them. Um, And, you know, in that essay, I write about giving students choice. And one thing I love about Poetry Out Loud is that students do go through the process of looking through this incredible anthology of poetry and figuring out what is a poem that speaks to me in some way. Um, and then getting to know it really, really well. And, um, so for me, it's been very powerful. I have my handful of poems that are just in me that I can access at any time and they turn into mantras and they turn into songs, you know, these little pieces of, wisdom that I can access anytime. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think it's incredibly important that students at least have that experience um, because it's tapping into something, again, that I think is deeply human, um, is deeply soothing, and, and of course is poetry. And poetry, um, <laughs> to quote Joy Harjo, um, is a place beyond words. You know, it's, it's something that we really need Um, and yet you can't really put your finger on it. And it's that connection to people across time, people across cultures. Um, and it's a step out of loneliness as well, which I think all kids need is to realize I'm not alone in this experience. So there's so much to me in memorizing poetry that's powerful. Um, and that's why I bring it to my kids. I just think that it's, an incredibly important experience before they leave high school. Mm. And can you talk a little bit more about the poetry out loud? It's actually a program, right? Yes, it's a it's a program, um, a national program that um, happens every year. And starting at the school level, teachers um, have students choose poems from the Poetry Out Loud anthology and perform those poems for their peers. And they have a school level competition of sharing those poems. Poetry Out Loud has wonderful rubrics for how those performances are evaluated. And then they go on to a district and a state competition. Um, So, you know, for many years, I brought students to the state competition in Honolulu. Mm -hmm. And it's a great, it's, you know, it's an amazing day of watching young people perform these poems that are really, like I said, tapping into the human experience at every level. I mean, some of them are hilarious poems. Some of them are deeply sad. Some of them are romantic. Mm. Um, but you have these high school students figuring out where they fit in all of those um, experiences. And then it goes on to a national competition that gets, you know, <laughs> really, you have just incredibly talented kids at that point. Um, sharing three poems of their choice. Mm. So it's it's an incredible program. You know, one of the things that's happened um, as I've done this podcast series is that there are these moments, Aaron, where 
I, I hear something from a guest and I just think, oh, I wish I could go back to school. Um, you know, <laughs> my, my, my experience with poetry in high school was not good. Um, and I, I just think, you know, about how marvelous it would be to be part of an experience like that, to travel together, to do poetry together, to perform it together. Um, and I, I just hope that that's something that um, more kids have an opportunity to do. And it sounds like it's actually a pretty small step for a teacher who might be listening to just go, oh, you know, I'll Google uh, poetry out loud and they'll they'll find something there that can, that opens a door for them. Is that is that a fair statement? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's how, I mean, we had a teacher at Kauai High School when I was there who ran Poetry Out Loud and then kind of handed it off to us. But, um, but that's absolutely right. You can go to Poetry Out Loud and it will walk you through the whole experience. And I truly believe um, that the best thing a teacher can do is choose a poem from the anthology themselves mm -hmm. and learn it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, this is, and this ties more to the school I'm at, but you know, makahana kaike, um, in doing one learns. And if you're going to teach it to your kids and ask it of them, I think every teacher needs to be willing to learn a poem and perform it for their kids and be vulnerable because it is scary. Yeah. It's very scary. And, um, you know, we need to be that safe space for them as well. But it's, it's, um, an incredible program that is very well organized and any teacher could do it, honestly. Yeah, that's awesome. So Aaron, the, the Merwin Conservancy is a, is a small and thriving arts and ecology organization on the island of Maui. Um, it conserves both an extraordinary place. It also conserves the sense of wonder that brought forth from Merwin's poetry and his garden. And there are a number of educator submissions I read in, in an anthology that you provided for me. And all were based on a quote-unquote driving question, which I love. Um, I can't read all of the driving questions, but I will read one by Kari Leong, whose son I actually interviewed for this podcast. Um, Kari asked, how can students use poetry, imagination, and deep thinking about who they are to learn more about their families and cultures? And I was like, wow. So what is the value of driving questions, Erin, and how might they be used to spark students' interest in writing? Oh, I love that question. I, I think that for me, a, the importance of a driving question is that it looms large over a project or a unit. Um, it's repeated, it's visible, and so kids really have the time to pay close attention to it. And um, I can speak to it better in terms of what I do right now, which is that we have a driving or essential question for each quarter project that we do. And we take a lot of time to unpack it with the kids and really learn every word and make sure they understand um, what it's asking of them. But I think what is wonderful about having that big question is like being a historian. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. open-ended. Um, it's asking kids to really engage in the inquiry process. And then wherever they go out and find information, whatever stories they gather, whatever memories they dig into, you're returning to the same central place. And I think that one of the things that's so important about that is when you get kids sharing their work at the end of, you know, partaking in, in a unit or a project like that, um, 
everybody now has this collective understanding when their work is shared about that question that takes them way farther than they would ever get if you just handed them an essay prompt with mm-hmm. that question and they wrote about it and then you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I think there's incredible power in those essential questions. And I think they imply that our kids are capable of incredible things Mm. because um, that's another piece to me that's very important is we don't know where they will take these questions. Mm. And I think that's just essential in our education system is that they have lots of opportunities um, to go on journeys that do not have a certain endpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and let them kind of figure out that it's okay to be unsure of the answer um, because that's that's actually really a, a life skill that they need to gain through our education system. Mm-hmm. You're not always going to find answers. And then what do you do? And how do you keep digging? Mm-hmm. Um, how can you ask another source? So, um, yeah, I think they're really wonderful um, foundations for project-based learning in particular. Well, actually, I was going to ask you that. Are, are driving questions in writing, Aaron, different from, let's say, essential questions that might drive a project in a school or, or a learning setting? Yeah, I, I think my answer to that is I don't know. Um, when we were working in the Merwin Conservancy, the Creative Teaching Fellowship, Part of our work in developing these lessons was to really develop a project. And so to me, they're the same, but I think there's people who have spent more time um, working in this world that might have a different perspective. Um, To me, they're the same thing in terms of asking students to really wonder about something Mm -hmm. and to let that guide what they go and learn and to let them... Um, to let that guide what they write, um, to let that guide discussions that are had in the classroom. Um, To me, it's that, again, that foundation that you come back to as a whole class Mm. that Mm. is really important. Mm. That's super interesting. So, hey, everyone, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Aaron Medeiros is a teacher at Kano Ikapono Learning Center, a K-12 Hawaiian culture-focused school in Anahola on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. So, Aaron, for the Merwin Anthology, and in the middle of what was the worst part of the COVID pandemic last July, you wrote a beautiful essay titled Stillness in the Storm, Living in Uncertain, or sorry, Learning in Uncertain Times. And it seems to me these uncertain times will continue long after the pandemic has been defeated. So I want to ask you three questions based on the subheadings that organized that essay. So here's question number one. Why must safety and well-being come first? Uh, Yeah, I think that um, building a safe environment for our students, I mean, it's we can't do anything if we don't have that. Um, I think a big thing I've seen kind of across teacher social media this year, um, and certainly before this year is, you know, Maslow's like, we got to have kids who come to school feeling safe and fed and have water to drink and have shelter before we can engage them in these deeper, um, experience learning experiences. I think with COVID in particular, um, balancing 
information for the kids with, um, you know, a healthy sense of caution Mm -hmm. and a sense that when they come to our classes, they are safe is so elemental. And I know we all had to make a big shift this year, but, um, knowing that it saved lives is, is so important. And I think it truly moved us in an incredible direction in education. Mm. Um, but again, I think, you know, kids coming into a classroom, whether it's online or in person and knowing that they are going to be welcomed and they can trust the teacher that it's predictable, um, that their peers will treat them with respect is, I mean, it's just, it's number one and we can't Mm. move forward without that. I think it's so amazing how, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to talk about silver linings in a pandemic because of the terrible death and destruction that this, this COVID-19 pandemic has caused. And yet I, I agree with you that there might be this marvelous silver lining going forward that we have safety and well-being first and foremost on our minds um, as we travel into the future with kids, right? I mean, it just seems like such an elemental thing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, of course, in during the pandemic, we're thinking about their physical safety and not being exposed to this virus. But, um, but absolutely, you know, in terms of mental health and all the other mm. forms of well-being that they need, I, you know, it, I hope that this year taught us how important that is. And in fact, you know, a lot of people that have been very vocal about how important it is for students to go back to in-person learning, I think, um, sometimes forget how important it is to have in place at every school, all of the resources we possibly can to support kids' mental health. Mm. And, um, just physically being there on campus is not enough for a lot of our kids. We really need to give them deeper supports than that. So, um, that's a whole nother conversation, but I think that that safety and well-being is, um, yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, we can't do much without that being there. Right. So what makes nature and place our most powerful teachers? Wow. Um, <laughs> Big question. <laughs> um, you know, where my mind goes with this is that to me, learning about where we live um, is the jumping off point for everything else. And um, it's interesting in this last year of being kind of stuck in one place that I think many people have become more connected to the places that they live and have perhaps realized that, oh, wow, there's a lot of places I had not explored here, or there's a lot of places I didn't know much about. Um, But digging into those places and really being invested in them, I think is the beginning of a true relationship. Um, so, you know, at our school, we, we share Olalonoyao every month that are kind of our grounding ideas. And, um, one of them of course is Heali Ika Aina Heikawa Kanaka land is, um, chief man is its servant. And I think for my students, um, for people that kind of have a mind toward history, mm. um, where you are, where you live is your first teacher. Um, it is the thing that provides for you. Um, 
It is the place where you have roots. And those kind of family origins give us our first learning, right? Mm. Those places where we spend our childhood days, you know, are, are our first learning. Absolutely. And um, those interactions are so embedded in us. And I think keeping that relationship going as we go through the public education or, or private mm-hmm. um, education process is really important because a lot of that relationship from our early years is kind of subconscious, the, these relationships that are hard to really explain. Um, but I think one of our uh, responsibilities in education is to make that more explicit as kids get older and to help them understand mm-hmm. what are you learning from being in this place? What what else might you be curious about, um, about the town you live in, about the Ahupua'a you live in, about the island you live on? Um, that there's so much just by focusing on where you are. Mm. Um, and I think that being outside naturally focuses our minds towards some curiosity. Mm. You know, how, how does this tree grow? How did this, you know, river end up flowing right here? There's just, Mm. I think those go together so naturally that we need to make sure that we're spending time outside with our kids, both at home and at school. Yeah, you're you're describing my growing up experience. School was <clears throat> never really a, a great thing for me, but um, I grew up in Kahalu on the windward side of Oahu, and place and, and nature were absolutely my teachers as I grew up. And from the very earliest moments of my life that I can remember, um, the learning was already beginning. Um, so that's that's really marvelous, Aaron. And so, and then finally, from your essay, the third question: in what in what ways is uncertainty not a disaster? Oh, I mean, well, as we've talked about with talking about history, I think not knowing something is actually the beginning of a really important journey um, for teachers. You know, with this year. I mean, going into like August 1st, we didn't know when school was going to open. We didn't know. There was so much we didn't know. When will schools close? You know, that that is really, really frightening as a teacher, as a parent to jump into that. But at the same time, um, we do have to tap into everything that we have. Um, Be creative, make sacrifices, be brave in new ways. Um, and I think that many teachers discovered things this year that they never would have discovered had we not had so many questions and not a lot of answers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, I think in the essay I write about my, my daughter interviewing her great grandmothers. Um, but I, what I, what I think is interesting there is like, you know, this is not the first time there has been a a disaster. Um, We just are really deep in it right now. But this is what it's like to be human is to not have answers to what are we going to do right now. Mm -hmm. And I think when we can go back and realize that people have gone through uncertain times, um, people found creative solutions, um, people work together, um, and they got through it, you know, that's, that's just a natural step in being human. And, um, 
And it's important both as teachers, as parents, individuals to kind of get through this year realizing, okay, you know, taking stock. What did I learn? How can I do things differently? Um, How do I want to engage maybe with my community differently going forward? Because Mm. we do have a crisis that we need to deal with. You know, there's, there's just so many questions that I think can be rich ways for us to reflect and move forward differently. So, yeah, so perfect. <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to quote from the final paragraph of your essay, um, Stillness in the Storm. Um, you wrote how easy it was to go to work and school before, how easy it was to accept roles, privilege, place, and the systems that made daily life easier than it is now. But right now, it's hard because we are busy planting and growing something new. As the storm swirls, we're preparing the best we can, remembering, quote, our only hope is to be the daylight. So I wonder, Aaron, if you can recall for me a particular moment in the last year where you were the daylight to someone or even to yourself. (laughs) Wow. Um. You know, I I guess where my brain goes with this is um, when when we first went on lockdown more than a year ago, um, my colleague, my co-teacher, Uncle Carby, and I, you know, we kind of got to work immediately trying to figure out uh, what are we going to do and how do we take what is difficult right now and what is working right now and give ourselves the opportunity to make something good. And um, so I suppose my answer is that from the beginning of the crisis, we went into it like, what can we do with this? How can we be resourceful? Mm -hmm. Um, And so really, because I have him, because I also have our amazing um, other co-teacher Kahanu, on our team, I I feel honestly like we were able to be that daylight for our kids this entire mm. year that we tried our very best to d- design a program that would keep them really engaged and keep them learning in their place and still be a really safe environment for them to come to every single day. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it was just from the beginning trying our very best to make the best of a difficult situation. Hmm. And, um, and for us, I mean, it, we really did completely redesign what we were doing. And I am, I'm really more satisfied in being a teacher now than ever before because of that transformation. So, Hmm. um, (laughs) I, that's not a very specific example, but I feel like it's really been just kind of the mindset that we've gone into this whole year with is like Hmm. having to just, make the very best of it. Mm. It's actually a great example, Aaron. And I've been thinking a lot lately about, you know, how much trust we have in our teachers. And I I hope that all of our kids, public, private, and charter, even homeschool, um, come out of this pandemic with a much greater appreciation for how much daylight their teachers provided for them over the course of, you know, a really difficult year. And it's still unfolding. And that trust will be built in our educators as a result of the kinds of daylight that you built, you and your colleagues built for your kids. That's that's my hope as we go through this, you know. Um, so our, our conversations around your essays um, – lead me to the fact that in 2018, Aaron, you led a Schools of the Future breakout um, 
session, you were the facilitator along with fellow education writers. So what is the case to be made for educators um, as published writers of personal and policy essays and books? Like what, what it, what is the accuracy we gain as a community as a result of educators being writers? Oh, I think it's so incredibly important for teachers to be the ones telling the story about what happens in schools um, because we really do get kind of surrounded in a way by um, media, other people who are not inside the school system telling us that, you know, our kids are failing or, you know, we're not doing this enough or the kids aren't prepared for that. Um, and it's a lot of negative messages, but um, really a transformation I've seen in the last um, 10 or 15 years, I would say 10 years, at least in Hawaii, is that there has been this um, growth of, you know, real grassroots teacher advocates. And mm. partly it's writing, partly it's social media, it's, you know, other forms of media. But teachers who are inside the classroom, um, kind of grabbing on to that story and saying, no, this is actually what's really happening in our classrooms. Mm, yeah. um, so I, and I think teachers kind of, I think that a lot of teachers struggle with feeling like their story is valid or that they even have something to say. Um, so part of that breakout session was just getting whoever came to the session to realize that, um, you know, they have all of these day-to-day -day experiences that if people could see and hear, mm. um, it would change just, you know, one degree at a time, how people perceive mm. education. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting. I'm a parent. Um, I love, I would love to go into my kids' classes more, but the reality is I'm working every day and I don't get to do that. So even as parents, we have ideas of what's happening in our kids' classrooms and in our kids' schools that aren't reality because we aren't there with them every day. And, and again, I think it's, that's the responsibility and the kuleana we have as teachers is to tell what is actually happening and slowly try and change the narrative about our schools. Hmm. Um, I think, I think in Hawaii that has absolutely happened over the last 10 years is that you see even a shift, I think led by the teachers themselves for the Hawaii DOE, for example, to focus on bright spots. Hmm. Um, they didn't have much of a, um, you know, public facing media presence before the last 10 years. And now you have them sending out, you know, these newsletters all the time. They have a great website and a lot of it is filled with teacher voices. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is so, so important because people believe things about the public education system, having not been in it for decades Mm -hmm. Um, and we have to, <laughs> we have to change that narrative. So that's my pitch is teachers are the best advocates for the school system and for students. Um, and I think truly everybody is a writer, truly everybody is a, a creative person. And it's just a matter of getting more teachers to, um, mm. give it a try and see what they can say about their own classrooms. Yeah, that's fantastic, Erin. The, the mission and vision of this podcast, which um, is at the end of two seasons, and I think I've done more than 60 episodes at this point, is to bring that thousand points of light mentality to the people of Hawaii so that they know what our educators are doing. They have a much greater awareness. And I actually started this um, second season with Lori Peroff, who's one of the most 
prolific writers about the teacher experience and about being a parent as well. Um, and so that's really where the question I think originated was way back in September when I, when I interviewed her. Um, and I really started to realize like, wow, there's a growing number of educators who are writing. Um, and that's fantastic. We're starting to get a much greater accuracy about what's happening um, in our schools. So, um, hey everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Aaron Medeiros. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we are back with Aaron Medeiros, a language arts and social studies teacher at Kanu Ikapono Learning Center, a K-12 Hawaiian culture-focused school on the island of Kauai. So Aaron, for the past few years, as part of my work with uh, the national organization, What School Could Be, I've focused a lot on something called an innovation playlist, which is housed at whatschoolcouldbe.org. And one of the elements of that playlist is something called Profiles of a Graduate, um, which is a really interesting and extended process that a education community can go through to figure out who they actually want their graduates to be and what they want them to know and what they want them to be able to do. And I've done some work on Molokai um, with Molokai schools around Portrait of a Graduate. So the Hawaiian-focused charter school have something called vision of the graduate. Um, and I'm actually going to read it real quick here. Um, cultural knowledge, responsibility to ohana, community and environment, demonstrate, understand, apply Hawaiian values, respect and honor genealogy, recognize and accept leadership roles to manifest cultural knowledge, know a place, 
history, and resources as a PICO and a foundation for making larger connections, understand importance of reciprocal relationships and responsibilities in a cultural context. So my question is, how did these school communities, um, and I think that there are 17 total right now that, um, are, that share this vision of the graduate, how did these school communities from such different places and contexts around the Hawaiian Islands come together to agree on these visions? Like, what was the process that that allowed that to happen? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, I'm not the best person to speak to the process, but I'll share what I know. Um, I've only been at Kanoe Kapono for the last three years. To my knowledge, um, these those 17 Hawaiian-focused charter schools all began around the same time, um, soon after the millennium, the 2001 time. I know 2001 is when our school was founded. Um, and from the beginning of that, the directors of those schools collaborated very closely. Mm. And um, I know that they worked together, I believe, to develop this vision of the graduate. Um, and so this same vision is what guides all of those schools, the Hawaiian focused charter schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's those directors and, and really when you think about what that, <laughs> what that means, I mean, you have people who had the courage and audacity and knowledge to found and and develop a school completely on their own. Mm-hmm. So you you already have people in the room together who are unbelievable. Yeah, that's true. Um, right. Yeah, and and who are deeply tied to the Hawaiian culture. So they I think probably knew going in what their vision was and it probably was just a matter of having that collaboration time to really mm-hmm. um articulate it in the clearest way possible. Mm-hmm. But um you know, kind of to speak to my experience with it, this is this is something interesting. And my first year of being at Kanui Kapono was not front and center. It wasn't really shared with me. And um, it wasn't until I kind of stumbled into the, the culturally relevant assessment process with our school that I got to know the vision of the graduate better. Mm. And as soon as I had that, um, and really understood like, oh, wait, this is, this is what we are doing here. Um, that's when my, my career really shifted because this became front and center in what I was trying to do every day. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a huge learning curve because this is not my background at all, but, um, I bring that curiosity to what I do and I, I hope I'm honoring it the best I can. But, um, yeah, I mean, the vision of the graduate, it's this shared Mm-hmm. shared mission for all of us schools. Um, and they do work really closely together still. All the po'okumu from these different schools meet regularly and are constantly, you know, um, building mm-hmm. on this vision. So Yeah, it was really neat to actually spend a bunch of time, um, especially at the culturally relevant assessment page um, and learning about the visions of a graduate. I, was, I watched all the videos, the YouTube videos that are, that are on that site. And it's like so amazing. You know, the kids are, they're in space programs and robotics and voyaging and ocean science and, and, and writing programs and everything under the sun. And it just, um, it, it gave me chicken skin thinking about the kinds of experiences that kids were having. So uh, 
speaking of the of the assessments, um, Aaron, I spent some time reading your school's Strive High graduation requirements, um, which are you know all Hawaii public and public charter schools are required to use. And these strive high requirements are very, they struck me as very Western centric, the usual X number of math, science, social studies credits, and so on. And um, learning in, in subject silos, which has been what we've been about for a very, very long time. So how do you and your faculty peers um, emotionally and intellectually bridge the spaces between your Hawaiian focus um, the culturally relevant assessments and these Western constructed graduation requirements? Oh, that's such a good question. It is something that we are constantly grappling with. I imagine the same thing goes for the other Hawaiian focused charter schools. Um, I'll speak briefly to like elementary and middle because I have that familiarity from being a parent and from being a division leader at the school that you know, we do have, they have time and the students have time in the day for English language arts. They have time in the day for math, but um, a, there's a lot of love and effort put into providing the Hawaiian culture focus that ties into all of that. So students have an Ike Aina class, um, students have mele, students um, practice hula, um, students, I mean, we've had so many kind of amazing um electives, if you will, but the, that are really the foundation of the school that are woven in from day one when kids get there in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are present in their learning every single day. Um, teachers, of course, are um, especially, you know, it takes time over the years of being hired at the school and how, how well established the teachers are. But the ones that are the most established have woven in these Hawaiian cultural pieces to all that they do in language arts and math and science. Um, But we, you know, in the high school, we, this was kind of our question is how do we do this? Because we were separated into those subject area silos. And when I first started at the school, we had a curriculum for language arts that was, I mean, it was straight out of New York. It was the Engage New York curriculum. Right. And I really struggled that first year with how to make that Hawaiian focused Um, in some meaningful way. And so the shift that we've made in the last year is um, a program that we, well, in the last year and a half, um, program that we call Pilina Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And Pilina, of course, is connection. And um, the whole goal with it is to have us be guides in helping students see the connection in everything they're doing in those core subjects to Hawaiian culture. And so um, the shift we've made in particularly in the last year to project-based learning, Mm. one of the pieces that um, we're always working on with the kids is taking um, whatever we're doing in the core subjects and having really explicit conversations about how that connects um, to Hawaiian culture and specifically to whatever essential question we are tackling for the quarter. Mm. So um, for example, in our, third quarter project, um, we asked for our essential question, what Hawaiian knowledge should I possess and perpetuate about my ahupua'a wow. or the place, or the place I consider a pico. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so we asked students, we really challenged them, okay, as you go and do interviews and do research about your place and ask family members and all of that, 
um, how is that connecting to what you're learning in environmental science, what you're mm-hmm. learning in ninth grade language arts, what mm-hmm. you're learning in biology, whatever it may be. Right. Um, and that's, that's a real reach, but I think we have found that again, when you ask that open-ended question, students are able to make connections that you never, <laughs> you never could have even planned as a teacher. Mm. Um, so that's a very beautiful thing. But, mm. um, but anyway, I mean, back to your original question, this um, challenge of integrating the Hawaiian culture focus in with those subject areas is something that we're trying to kind of um, slowly continue to make more successful through project-based learning because we really believe that that's the way the kids are going to tie these things together in a way that is meaningful, it's purposeful, and it's lasting for them. Right, right. So kind of along those lines, I watched a video that you provided for me, a, a wonderful video where a young woman named Emma presented her learning um, to you and your faculty. Um, and that got me wondering about this question, Aaron. What is the power of these kinds of public exhibitions or public displays of knowledge? And what small steps can educators or schools take to tap into that power? Uh, well, I'm completely convinced that the most uh, meaningful thing that we can do is have students present what they have learned to their peers and to adults in their community. Um, I think no matter what the student's background is, if they know that they are going to be sharing what they've learned with other people, the quality just goes through the roof. Um, So, you know, that's really what we have seen throughout this year is that every single quarter we have Hoike at the end of the quarter, um, students are presenting to their peers. And in the case of our school, you know, I think it can be a little intimidating for the kids because we we keep our ninth to 12th graders together as one cohort. And so, um, you know, if a student signs up to present on Monday and they're in ninth grade, they might have, you know, five 12th graders in that meet with them, listening right. and, and learning from them. Wow. But I, I, I just think that that pushes them to a whole new place. Um, we had students at the beginning of the year who really were so scared to even present just to the teachers, um, didn't want to unmute, um, were kind of scared of even chatting. And now they are like reading their essays in front of everybody and presenting to admin and, you know, able to really um, come out of their shells and share what they've learned. So I think it's it's so important to have that um, mm. place where students know that they have an authentic um, assessment that is coming and people are listening to them. When kids feel like they are listened to, I think they really step up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Emma's is just one example of kids um, taking their learning to a whole nother level. As you heard in that video, she, she her sure topic did. was, <laughs> her, yeah, her topic was coconut and she yeah. goes on and like, on her own, just decided to learn how to make coconut oil and share that whole process. So, you know, things like that, that I think without that push to um, present and share their knowledge with others, they might not ever go there. 
Yeah. And her instinct to document the making of her products was an extraordinary step. She was like, you know, I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm actually going to film it. Um, And so that was that was really striking to me. And, And Aaron, I feel like maybe the next step and this has slowly been happening over the last few years. The next step is public exhibitions of teaching. Um, and I've been talking to some partners um, here on Oahu about the idea of building sort of an asset library, not of curriculum, but actually of teachers demonstrating their practice um, using video and audio and building a library of sorts that people can tap into um, to see, you know, what are some examples of, for example, project-based learning or, it, you know, in your case, uh, something to do with, you know, helping kids develop a joy for writing. Um, so I'm kind of, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And that kind of leads me as we come down to the end here to a couple more questions um, about students and your relationships to um, to your students. Um, you wrote a really, really neat piece that you shared with me. Um, and the context of this was just a really difficult time, including um, part of the last year in which you began to build trust with your students. And I think that there's a fundamental difference between asking students to trust me, the teacher, and actually building a relationship of trust with my students. So why do you feel it's important to build trust with your students? And what are the what are the small steps educators can take to begin that trust building process? Um, you know, I think, um, we have to see every single student as a person who brings a whole life experience into the classroom, especially when you're working with, I mean, at every grade level, of course, but when you're working with secondary students, I mean, they're bringing 14 to 17 years of life experience to you. And, Mm -hmm. um, we really have to know how to handle that with care. So, um, you know, a big thing for me, and I think it's a natural orientation I have in a way, but, um, but it it is just really being gift focused for the kids of what are the gifts that you bring, not focusing on what they can't do yet or what they don't feel like they can do yet. And trying to acknowledge um, what they are able to do and what they bring every day. So it's it's having a really conversation based classroom. It's hmm. chatting at the beginning. I mean, in our classes, we do Google Meets every day still, um, and students do come on campus once a week as well. But at the beginning of every Google Meet is just asking them to chat questions that they can either unmute or type in. Um, that are about them, how they're doing, how's their academics going, what's something they know about this topic, and just getting them to feel like we really care about what they have to say. So um, that's huge to me is is making sure that kids know that we're really interested in what they can bring. Um, in the case of, you know, my school, I, I, it couldn't be more honest because my kids know way more about Hawaiian culture than I do. And so Mm. it really is about tapping into that and letting them teach us and teach each other. Yeah. Um, But I I think when kids realize that their backgrounds and their gifts and their talents are going to be seen and appreciated, it's a launching point for them to really grow. Mm. Um, Mm. So... I don't know if that really spoke to your question. It does. But. <laughs> it, it, it does, actually. I mean, the sentence in that piece that I wrote 
that really jumped out at me. I'm actually going to read it. In our first gathering, we build trust with each other, discussed the writing process, observed, wrote countless reflections and poems, read our writing to one another, and collaborated on inquiry-based unit and lesson plans. And, you know, to me, you've you validated that sentence with your response that that teaching and um, and or teachers and students in a learning environment is a deeply collaborative process, not a one way street. Mm. Um, and I think that that's really what you're talking about. Is that is that a fair way to look at it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all about the relationships that kids have with us and with each other and and making sure that they feel safe to be themselves. So absolutely. Mm. And what is what is a small step that a teacher listening to this podcast might take on Monday to kind of move away from I'm the sage on the stage or I'm the the font of wisdom in a classroom and begin to build a trust relationship with students in any subject? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's trying to make sure we ask them what their experiences are and what they know. I mean, I, it is so simple, but truly um, what I said about starting every day with our two questions, um, I think it's so, it's so much fun. We have so much fun just starting our classes every day, yeah. um, asking them about, you know, what did you do over the weekend? Or what is one thing you learned from this one guest speaker we had or, you know, whatever, it always starts a conversation that mm. allows kids to express themselves um, and feel heard. And it is those, you know, those are baby steps to kids learning to communicate effectively in all of the realms that they need to. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about that with our kids all the time. It's like, you know, you need to become an effective communicator, not just for a job or going to college, but you're going to have relationships and you need to know how to speak, how you feel. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, those, I think those little ways that we connect with them at the beginning or, you know, in, in the middle of class at the end are yeah. the things that allow them to slowly open up. Um, yeah. And that's, so key. And my mind goes back to poetry and even poetry out loud and the simple step of not assigning a poem, but giving kids an opportunity to um, joyfully, you know, move through an anthology and look for something that speaks to them. It's a small yes. step, but it's so significant. Um, and it and it starts the process of building trust because you're saying to the child or to the kid, I trust you to figure out which poem is going to be the one that speaks to you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. So Aaron, we're, we're at the end here and I have just one more question I want to ask you. This time has gone by like a shot. Um, so you included in the biographic materials that you sent me a link to two playing for change songs made in Hawaii. Um, one titled Hawaii 78, a song uh, that was actually made famous by a brother is, but was not written by him, in fact. Um, and another song titled Hawaii Aloha, which is, of course, very important to everybody in Hawaii. Um, hundreds of kids, maybe even thousands from across 24 schools and over 60 artists recorded these songs, these two songs live at dozens of locations across four islands. So I guess my question is, um, why did you send me those two links? Um, and what is it about that song project that captured your, your head and your heart? Wow. Well, you know, those first captured my heart um, when I was a parent of a student because 
Uh, my my older daughter has now been at Kanui Kapono for six years. She's at the end of her fifth grade year. And um, we really became learners by her being a student at that school. So hmm. watching her prepare for the um, Hawaii Aloha filming um, was kind of our entry point into watching what um, Mana Mele and Mana Maoli do. And, um, and I just... Oh my gosh, the first time I saw those videos, I was like, this is unbelievable. Um, but then to be, you know, kind of in the school side of it and to see that um, what they have done through Manamele is to unite these Hawaiian focused schools um, in an experience that is unforgettable for them and around a song that is unforgettable for them mm-hmm. is, um, it, to me, that's really why we should be teaching and the importance of teaching something really meaningful is that, you know, the kids who are in these videos are never going to forget it. Um, They're never going to forget those songs. And, you know, I, to me, that has to be our goal is that um, we engage our kids in doing things that they won't forget because what's the point if they are going to go and forget it. Um, And so I just, I think that the work they do is so significant and, a real strong belief I have is that we are preparing our kids to be members of the community. Um, what they do for career and what they do for college is another thing, but we want our kids to be community members in this place. And I think that um, these videos reflect that shared desire that these kids see that they're part of something, you know, much bigger and um, incredibly beautiful that ties them to their place and ties them to the past. And um, I just think the videos express that in a way that certainly my words cannot, um, mm. but just, you know, are, are so important to being students and human beings in Hawaii right now. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think those two projects were just absolutely astonishing and incredibly marvelous. And, and listeners, if anybody, if you want to see these videos, just Google Playing for Change Hawaii 78 or uh, Playing for Change Hawaii Aloha and they'll pop right up um, in your YouTube feed. Um, they're really worth watching. It's a deeply collaborative process that yielded um, two uh, absolutely chicken skin moments. Um, and I've, I've watched them many times. So that's great, Aaron. So thank you for sharing your time today. I hope you and your awesome family remain safe and in good health, Aaron. Thank you for all you do to engage students in the joy of learning. Thank you to both you and Jonathan for all you do to um, help kids understand um, and experience what school could be. Wow, mahalo Josh for having me. It was so nice to talk with you. Recently, I started a new way to end my episodes. I'm a great admirer of Hawaii Business Magazine, which does a series each year called 20 for the Next 20. This series highlights mostly younger folks in Hawaii who will be powerful forces for good in the next 20 years. I will end each episode by highlighting one of these amazing individuals. Aaron Shorn is the capstone coordinator at Hawaii Preparatory Academy and the director of Nalukai Academy. Aaron notes, being a teacher in this world is being a jazz musician. You know your standards, you know how to perform, and then you just freeform it based on your student population. 
The Nalukai Academy Startup Camp is a free 10-day technology, entrepreneurship, and design boarding camp offered to high school students each summer on Hawaii Island and Oahu. Experienced entrepreneur service consultants and students develop products, business plans, and investor pitches while honoring Hawaii's place and culture. Aaron evolved into his current role as capstone coordinator at Hawaii Preparatory Academy, where students produce a capstone project at the end of 5th, 8th, and 12th grades, choosing their projects and engaging in real-world problem-solving with the support of peers, teachers, and mentors. Aaron is one of the reasons Hawaii is leading the way in education innovation, which is why he is now one of Hawaii's 20 for the next 20. Thank you, Aaron, for all the work that you do for our kids. This podcast is inspired by the book, What School Could Be. Please join the newly launched What School Could Be virtual community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii and at Josh Rapoon. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Friends, stay safe, wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and for the love of the gods, get vaccinated. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the start of season three, ahui ho and take good care.